Well, good morning, good morning. So good to see you all here. And if you are joining with us online, wonderful to have you with us this morning. Well, we continue in our series in Philippians today. So if you would please turn to Philippians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 11. And while you're turning there, if you'll recall last week, I asked you all to pray, to have a concerted effort to pray for snow to come. And I want to thank you all because there, the Stoneham family has experienced quite a bit of snow this week. Now, the problem is, it's the wrong Stoneham family. The Stoneham family that lives up in Tennessee, in the mountains of Tennessee, have just enjoyed white powdery snow all week long. My father, who is probably watching with us right now, texted me this morning uh, and showed me the beautiful vistas of the rolling hills of Tennessee covered in white and he said, son, it's an inch and a half so far. Dad, it's just a cold rain in Charlotte, North Carolina. So you all please pray that that would shift a little bit further east and a little bit further south. Maybe next week we'll have some snow. That would be great. But I'm thankful that you are here regardless of the weather and that we are here in the house of the Lord to praise his name. I want to echo what Vern said uh, tonight. We're going to have a time of prayer. I know it's the Super Bowl, but you all come out and pray as we pray for the church, for their country, and for what God will do in our midst as we move forward. Well, last week as we approached the text, we saw in the introduction the text broken out into three different sections, a welcome, a thanksgiving, and a prayer. And we concentrated on that thanksgiving and what it was to have joy in fellowship, even in separation, which of course speaks so much to where we are in our current uh, situation with this pandemic. But today, the third part of Paul's opening in the letter is a prayer for the Philippians, a bold prayer for the church. And it's a prayer that we need to adopt ourselves and not only pray for the church, but pray for ourselves that this would come out and come forth in us. We need to adopt what Paul is saying. And in it, even though it's three small verses, there's so much to look at. And I hope uh, prayerfully the Lord would uh, speed me through it and yet give me clarity of speech as we go. Well, if you have found Philippians 1, 9 through 11, will you please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word. Paul says this, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be gathered in your house, to be gathered as a church, whether here physically or apart. And Lord, I pray that in this moment, Father, that this prayer of welling up love, an overflowing love, Lord, would fill each of us. Father, that you would continue to pour out in us as vessels of your Spirit, Father, that we would overflow to others. Lord, may you move mightily in this church and sister churches all across this nation and around this globe. Father, stir in your people to greater and greater acts of love and service towards you and others. Now, Father, I pray that you would speak and move me out of the way. Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray this in the blessed name of Christ. Amen. 
You may be seated. Well, as we approach these three verses, there is a structure to what Paul is saying, fairly straightforward. He is in the first part here in verse 9, he's giving us the what that he is praying for, the action that he is praying for. And then verses 10 through 11, he's telling us why he is praying it or the purpose of the prayer, the outcome that he would like to see in our lives. And so with that, knowing that structure, the what and the why, there are four points I want to bring up this morning. First point is this, under the what, the action that Paul is desiring in the church. So the first point is this, a love tsunami. He's praying for a love tsunami. And it's interesting, as he starts here in verse 9, he says, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. He's saying, I pray that your love keeps abounding. It's clear from even the opening few verses that the love that the Philippians have is already tremendous. But Paul is saying in our lives through Christ, there is even more to go. For every day that we live, our love can continue to well up. And Paul, as you read his letters, continues to say there is greater and greater perfection to achieve as we live our Christian's life. There is always more. But I want to point out this, and this is one time uh, I love the CSB translation, but I think the CSB translation in this verse is woefully lacking in what he is saying. In my translation, it says this, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing, keep on growing. That is a nice term, but it is woefully lacking in what he's actually saying there. It's almost comically inadequate, and I don't know why they translated it that way. I think the NASB and other translations pull this in. He says that your love may abound still more and more. That really captures the essence of what Paul is saying, an abounding love that grows more and more. And if you have an abundance of something, you already have a tremendous amount, but he's saying take that abundance and multiply it again and again and again. Really what he's saying here is that in your life there should well up inside of you a love tsunami. And I know tsunami can capture our attention. It is a bad thing for a tsunami to come along. But I want to use something that's bad to illustrate really what Paul is saying here about how much love should outpour. If you think back almost 10 years ago, it'll be next month, in 2011, there was a tsunami that struck Japan. It was devastating. But since it was in the modern era, it was also widely recorded. And there's one image that I think really sums up this massive amount of welling up that Paul is saying here is there was one angle of the tsunami as it comes in in a a small bay in Japan, uh, very bowl-shaped. And so the photographer is recording what's happening, and in in this bay there is a 30-foot retaining wall. And then from that retaining wall is kind of the pier and the wharf where boats are. And what he's showing is that the water level is very low. In fact, it's probably 40 feet from the, uh, where the water level is to the top of that wall. And then he turns his camera out to the sea, and what you see is these uh, wave-breaking walls suddenly just get inundated. And then he turns his camera back to the bay, and just suddenly water is filling that bay. And then it approaches the wall. And it keeps coming, and it keeps coming, and it keeps coming. And it's just, it's almost, it's unsettling how calm it all is. 
how this water just keeps filling. And then you look and you say, it's about to hit the wall. It's about to crest the wall. It needs to stop, but then it overflows that wall. And it overflows everything around it. And not only does it pour over that wall, soon the water outside of the wall meets the top of the wall and it keeps going. And then you think it cannot grow anymore. It cannot well up anymore and it continues to do so. And this is the imagery that we should have for the love that Paul is praying for, that inside of us it's not a cup that is filled and overflows. It is an ocean that rises above every border and overspills. This is the great love that Paul is praying for. And again, why the CSB is kind of in, inadequate and it says, keep on growing. No, it is a, a tsunami of love that should come out of us is what he is praying for. This is what the Christian life should be. Now, when you think of overflowing, there are two aspects of overflowing that occur. There is an upward movement and then there's an outward movement. Anything that overflows has an upward, a vertical aspect, and then a horizontal outward aspect. He said that should be the Christian life. Notice that he doesn't say what kind of love. Is it love for God? Is it love for man? He just says love. But he's going to clarify that upward and outward movement in just a moment. But we are to be filled up to overflowing. So that vertical aspect is towards God. When we are overflowing in love, we have a vertical, God-centered love. And that's what he says next. And I pray this, that your love will keep growing in knowledge. Well, that's the vertical aspect, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he's saying not just any old knowledge, not just information that you learn, and not knowledge separated from love, because he says in 1 Corinthians 13 too, knowledge without love puffs up. He's saying, no, this is a very specific knowledge, an intimate knowing of Jesus Christ, holding fast to him. In fact, later on in this letter, he speaks into what that knowing is. In Philippians 3.10, he says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. This is an intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. I want to know him more. I want to cling to the cross. I want to cling to the empty tomb. And I want to hold on to the sufferings that he has. I want to know that intimately, to know Jesus in all of his fullness, in all of his glory, in all of his power. He says in that vertical knowledge, if we hold fast to Jesus and we learn about him, through his word and through prayer and then through our action of saying, Jesus, come closer, and us moving towards him, what will occur is we will begin to well upwards. And once we well upwards with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, he then says the second thing occurs, the horizontal aspect, the pouring out on all others. And he says here in the text that that is discernment, growing in knowledge in every kind of discernment. This is towards man. This is the only time in the New Testament that this word is used in the Greek, discernment. However, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the LXX, the Septuagint, it's used often in Proverbs to speak of a wisdom, of a discernment. But this wisdom and this discernment is simply this, is a wisdom that sees a thing and then acts on it, is to see and to act on moral and ethical matters, to discern them. 
This it means this, when we look out to our fellow man and we begin to pour out towards them, is to see the needs that they have and then to act on those needs, to discern through what needs to be done. In fact, James tells us the incorrect discernment that a Christian can have. In James 3, 16, he says this, And one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, which is to discern and see that they are not in peace, that they are not well fed, that they are not warm. But he carries on, he says, But you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? He said, You've seen the need, but your discernment has failed because you have not met the need. So he's saying the upward movement of love towards Christ and then the horizontal movement of love towards man is discernment, see and act. This is what he prays. So essentially this, he's praying that Christians would know Christ and understand people. And through that, we'll have a tsunami of love in the Christian life. So this is what he's praying for. Now let's look at the why he is praying, the results of this tsunami of love. The second point is this. We need to test what is best. We need to test what is best. Look at the first part of verse 10. So that you may approve the things that are superior. So that you may approve the things that are superior. See, growing in love helps us seek what is best in our relationship with Christ and with man. But here's the problem. What is best is not always easy to discern. It's not always easy to know, and that's what he is saying. The tsunami of love will help us in this. In the CSB, it says to approve, so that you may approve the things that are superior. That word approve means this. It means to test, test things. And in fact, we see the same word used in 1 Peter when he says that there's a purification that occurs in the Christian life, essentially this, to examine something through fire. That's what is to test a thing, to find its very essence, to examine so much that we are melting it down and putting it through the trial and so that we can see on the other side of it is purity. So it's not just a simple look, it is to really dig in. That's what it is to approve it, to find its very essence. But then he goes on, he says not only approve it, but he says approve the things that are superior And this is where he's talking about better and best. See, we're to test these things to find out not only what is better, but then what is best. My mom had a a, a saying that she has told me all of my life, and especially as I have become an adult, as I move through college and beyond. She always said this, Satan will give you better before God gives you best. Satan will give you better before God gives you best best. And she was telling me that because she said there are many things in life that will approach you that seem good. And Satan wishes to distract you with good so that you will not see what God is prepared to give you, which is best. And that is the discernment that we are to have through the tsunami of love. See, the problem is what is best is not the obvious choice. Let me give you a prime example from my own life. Carrots seem inferior to me than French fries. But the reality is this. A carrot is best for me, but French fries taste better, right? 
So what am I going to do? I'm typically going to lean towards the French fries because they taste better. But what I should be doing is lean towards the carrots. Even though for me they don't taste good, they are the best thing for me. Does that make sense? So it is in the Christian life. Paul even speaks of this again later in Philippians 3, 7, and 8 as he is recounting his life as a Pharisee. And he's saying at the time that life seemed better. But he has since come to know the fullness of Jesus Christ, and he has found the best life. And he says, what was once better in my eyes is now garbage, refuse, a dung heap to me because I've embraced that which is best through Jesus Christ. And yet that best may be suffering, that best may be shipwrecks, that best may be imprisonment, but he says it is still best. And in fact, the superior nature of what he's saying, we should test for what is best. He lists out at the end of this letter in Philippians 4.8, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. And yet, we need to discern what is true, what is honorable, what is just. He's saying when there is a tsunami of love in our hearts, then we will be able to test that which is best. And once we see what is best, we need to reject that which is better. Third point I want to bring to you is, and the second why of why uh, Paul is praying, is that we need to live ready for Jesus. We need to live ready for Jesus. Look again at the second part of verse 10. He says, and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. We may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Christ. See, a growing in love, the tsunami of love prepares us for the return of Jesus Christ. That first word that he lays out here, pure, that word translates to be sincere. And in the Greek, it really means to be sun-judged, sun-judged. And what sun-judged means is to take an item and hold it in the greatest light that we have to examine it and see that it is whole and perfect. And what's interesting is this word sincere, you probably have heard of this example before. It's kind of a, a folk understanding of the word sincere, a folk entomology of the word, to mean without wax, coming from the Latin sin, which is without, and sere, wax. Now what's interesting is this word sincere came into the English language in 1530, coming again from the Latin. But all the way back in 1600, we start seeing this imagery of without wax to be attached to the word sincere. And the examples would come from that in old Roman times, that those who made pottery would take that pottery and sell it. And if that pottery had a crack, what they would do is they would cover the pot with wax so that if you tested the pot, it would hold water immediately. But once you took that pot home, you found out that that pot was not sincere because it would leak water. It was not whole. And so the Roman, uh, the Roman uh, um, marketplace 
And sellers would say, sincere, sincere, without wax, to say their pots were pure. So that's one folk telling, and it keeps going from there. And, and, and another one that maybe even goes further back is to talk about honey, honey without wax. Because you could so easily substitute melted wax inside of honey. And so that the same thing that different merchants would have to say that their wax was sincere, without wax. It was sincere, it was pure, unadulterated honey. Now, the interesting thing about this is, is that this is kind of a folk tailing. But the fact that in 1530 it came into English and in 1600 we see this without wax tracking along with it, it's almost hard to say, is it truly a folk understanding or have these two things, this example come into play because it's true. It's hard to discern. But either way, it is a perfect example of what sincere really is, to be without wax, to be whole, pure, unadulterated, whether it is honey that is unadulterated with wax, or whether it is a vessel that is not cracked and hidden by wax. It is to be pure. And if you move forward in our study on Hebrews on Wednesday nights, I found a wonderful definition that I shared with the team a few weeks ago that I think is applicable here. Sincere means that which not only has the name, but also the real nature that corresponds to the name. So when we, you say that you are a Christian, you can claim the name, but if you're sincere in it, you also have the nature of Christ that goes along with the name. That is sincere. So that is pure. But he also says not only pure, but to be blameless. And that word really means what it says. Essentially this, neither stumbling in your own life nor causing others to stumble. Neither stumbling in your life nor causing others to stumble. And he says he's praying for this, that we would be pure, uh, pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Paul is fixated, laser-focused on the coming day of Jesus Christ. He mentions it often, and he lives every day in anticipation of Jesus' return. You see that in multiple letters. And what he is saying every single time is the future event of Jesus' coming should manifest itself in actions in the present living. He said, for the Christian, it is not something we set aside for a coming day that we're packing our bags and we kind of think it's coming in the future. He said, for the Christian, the reality of the future should affect our present. So every day should be a day in anticipation of Christ's return, and not only in anticipation of it, but living as if it is tomorrow or if it is today. Because he knows breath may cease at any moment, and the day of Jesus Christ will come to that individual in that moment live today. So our preparation for Jesus does not mean to be active later, but it means to be active and present now in our lives. Now, the last thing, the last point, fourth point, but also the third reason why Paul is praying for a tsunami of love, he says, for us to be a bumper crop of spiritual fruit, 
a bumper crop of spiritual fruit. Look again at verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. So what he's saying in this is a love tsunami also bears a spiritual fruit bumper crop that comes from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We can also understand this is the fruit of the Spirit. We know this from Galatians 5, and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the fruit of the Spirit, and he's saying in our lives, may we have a bumper crop of that, not just to produce a single fruit, he says, but to produce an orchard of fruit, filled with the fruit of the Spirit that comes through Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can produce this bumper crop in the Christian. An orchard that is bursting with fruit. And you've all seen that. You can go to Hendersonville, North Carolina, where I grew up. Go to the apple orchards that are up there in the middle of a great apple season. What you will see are trees, as far as you can see, lined with beautiful fruit. And see, an orchard that is overflowing with fruit brings praise to the gardener because the gardener has done so well in raising the fruit, right? And that's why he says not only does the fruit come from Jesus Christ, but it is a glory to God the Father who he himself has produced that bumper crop of fruit. And he says, so if that tsunami of love is welling up in you, fruit should be abundant. Now, what does a bumper crop of fruit do for other people? So we see the vertical aspect that God creates that bumper crop, but the horizontal aspect is this. When you go to an orchard bursting with fruit, is pleasing to the eye. There's something about walking in and seeing an abundance of fruit that is joyous. And so it is with the world outside when they see a Christian abounding with fruit. It is a pleasure to them to see so much fruit. But it is also pleasing to the taste to have so much fruit. And if you are bursting with fruit, spiritual fruit born of Jesus Christ, other people will get a taste of Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's not common. And so if you are overflowing with it, they get to get a taste of heaven. But what else? When there is abundant fruit, there is abundant seed. And so when the fruit is done, seed is left over. And what happens with seed? Seed falls to the ground. It is planted. And what occurs? More fruit trees. So when you are overflowing with fruit, you are spreading and broadcasting the seed of the gospel all over the world. And they will be producing an even greater bumper crop. So overflowing love is filled with a spiritual fruit that helps grow spiritual people. So that said, this is what Paul is praying for. This is the prayer we need to adopt to have an ever bigger love in our life, both horizontally, horizontally and vertically. And so as we come to a close in a time of decision, Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a prayer that we have seen Paul pray for the church. 
It is a prayer we should adopt, not only to pray for the church as a whole, but to pray for our own individual lives. Even tonight, when we come to a time of prayer, we will be praying for an abundance of love to pour out. So the Word of God does not go out void. I believe that. And so my prayer is that as we settle in in just a moment, and I pray in Vern Sings, let this Word stir and till up the soil in your own heart. Adopt this prayer in your own life. There, there would be a great abundance of love. And pray this as well, that if there be anyone, whether they be in this room or being watching online, pray that the fruit of the Word has spread to them and they hear and that they would be saved. And if you're watching online with us this morning, I pray that prayer for you as well that there would be, you would sense the overflowing love of the Spirit of Jesus Christ and that you would surrender your life unto Him, confess your sins, and hold Him up as Lord and Savior. Confess His name as Lord of your life, and you will be saved. And then there's even more to the abundant Christian life, but it will begin in that moment. And if that's you, we want to hear from you. Everywhere we have posted this video, there are links in the description, and one of them is a link to a decision. And we'd ask that you would click on that and let us know. It's private. It'll come just to me, and that we can pray for you, and I can reach out to you and tell you more. If you're here this morning, it's you. There will be a time as soon as service is over that we can speak. I would love to do that and share with you even more. But, oh, church, let's pray this prayer. Will you pray with me? Almighty Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this hour. Lord, I pray that we would be a tsunami of love. Father, that it would stir up in us through the power of Jesus Christ. Father, towards you in a vertical movement and then spilling out to all those around us in a horizontal way. Lord, only you can accomplish this. And Father, I pray that for us as a church and for me as an individual so that, Lord, we would know what is right. We would be prepared for the coming of your Son. And, Lord, we would be a bumper crop of spiritual fruit. Lord, I pray if there be just one this morning, Father, you would act and move in their life. I pray this in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.